Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Darkcast Network, where the light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops. Bienvenidos, bitches, and buiti binafi. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about serial killers of color and the victims. Uh, however, we are on a little break. And in the meantime, we wanted to share a true crime goodie with you from one of our pod pals on the Darkcast Network. What's this episode about today, Beth? This week's episode is brought to you by And Then They Were Gone, a podcast that takes deep dives into different missing persons cases every week. This case is the story of Daniel Robinson, a young geologist who went missing in the Arizona desert. Well, all right, here we go. In Enjoy. A young geologist goes to work, but once he gets there, he's acting confused and leaves 15 minutes later. His co-workers are concerned, and when time passes and he doesn't respond to his family's calls and texts, they begin to worry as well. Did Daniel Robinson decide to disconnect and leave on his own? Or, as his family suspects, did he fall victim to a darker fate? It's been four months, and Daniel's family is left with more questions than answers and a desperate desire to find their missing loved one. When a person goes missing, there's a special kind of pain in the not knowing. I want to tell the stories of those who never came home. I want to tell you the story of Daniel Robinson. I'm Kona Gallagher. And I'm Ethan Flick. And this is And Then They Were Gone. 
This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, undereating, and overeating. Okay, so the copy here says to talk about my experience with stress. Oh boy, <laughs> do you have an hour? Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> Work, bills, life, family. I could go podcast. on for a very, yeah, <laughs> podcast, a very long time. And I actually do though in therapy, which is so helpful for me so I can manage, deal, and get through it. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time. Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash fruit. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. All right, guys, it's it's time for me to come clean. It's okay. it's time for me to tell the truth. Right. It's time for me to spill the beans. Okay. It's time <laughs> to fess up. It's time to keep it a buck. Keep it 100. Are you going to get to it? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. So sometimes after dark, I sneak away and play Best Fiends. Others may wonder about my mysterious disappearances. They say, who does she think she is? David Blaine? David Copperfield? I say none of the above. In fact, I'm having so much fun playing Best Fiends. Ever heard? of it? Why, yes, I have. <laughs> I love Best Fiends. I love collecting the little monsters when you play so I can level up my fiends. Also, I love going in for the super long matches to free up the board and beat levels. Ooh. I am happy to report that I am on level 440. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, friend, I see you flexing over there. <laughs> now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting new levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. I am on on level 304. Beth, tell them about the offline play. Yes, of course. <laughs> there is offline play, so you don't even need Wi-Fi or the internet. Oh, good. So download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us once again. We have been covering a lot of like recent and active cases lately, and this one is no exception. Yeah, I know. Four months, you said. Four months. Daniel's case has been gaining momentum in the last month or so as the coverage around Gabby Petito has led to more mainstream conversations about how missing people of color are treated in the media. So while I'm saddened that that's what it took to get police to take Daniel's case more seriously, it does seem like they are kind of working a little bit harder now to find him. So hopefully his family will have some answers soon. But have you 
like before we even jump into this, do, have you heard of this? He's the the geologist who went missing in Arizona. No, of course not. Okay, so well, no, but the reason why I ask is because I've been aware of this case for a while now, and it has really gotten a lot more attention um, since Gabby's disappearance. But I still like I I'm a bad judge of like what normal people are aware of. <laughs> what. The crime obsessed, the non-crime obsessed are, are aware of exactly. So I didn't know if you you had heard of this. No, I haven't heard anything. All right, well then we'll definitely get into it. But before we dive in, I want to thank those of you who have joined us over on our Patreon page lately. So thank you, Heidi G, Kelly S, and Rebecca G. We really, really appreciate you. Thank you so much. And if you would like to join us, you can do so over at Patreon.com/slash/attwgpod. But now on to Daniel's story. As is the case with most recent missing persons cases, we don't have a ton of like background or biographical information on Daniel Robinson, but he was born on January 14th, 1997 in Columbia, South Carolina to Melissa Edmonds and David Robinson II. He lived in the area for most of his life and graduated from AC Flora High School in Forest Acres, South Carolina. Despite being born with his right hand and part of his lower arm missing, Daniel was an accomplished musician. His dad said that he he taught himself how to play the trumpet and the trombone, like the French horn, all sorts of instruments. How? I, he's just really good at stuff. I mean, the dude became a geologist. Like, he's obviously good at things. Oh, yeah, that's really impressive. His dad said he like loved playing video games as a kid. Like he never let that stop him. He said that Daniel like never looked at it as a disability. In fact, when he was young, his mom like bought like got him a prosthetic hand. And oh. you know, cuz like any mom, you know, you want to make your kid's life easier and he just refused to use it. Huh. Yeah. Wow. He's loved by his family. He's adored by his friends who call him WAP. Um, it's WOP as I, as I found out, cause I was curious if it was WAP, it doesn't matter, but it's WOP, it's WAP. His friends describe him as the type of guy who you can always turn to, like he's caring and he's just the type of person who's always there to lend a helping hand when someone is in need. In 2019, Daniel graduated from the college of Charleston and moved across the country to Buckeye, Arizona. Now, for those of you who aren't from the U.S. or are just like bad at geography, that's over 2,000 miles away. Wow. Or as Google told me, nearly 3,500 kilometers. So, I mean, that's a, yeah, it's a huge move for somebody just out of college. Yeah. Especially when you've lived basically in the same place for your entire life. But he moved there to start his career in geological field studies, working for Matrix New World Engineering. So, like, that sounds pretty cool. Apparently, he actually um, took some sort of a course in Arizona, and that's when Matrix found out about him or recruited him or whatever, and that's how he ended up moving so far away. And I, I would assume, as a geologist, if you're in the desert, there's, like, a lot of stuff to potentially find. Anybody that's seen Jurassic Park would uh, <laughs> would probably agree with that. <laughs> Apparently, being like a cool geologist, though, isn't a super high-paying job because Daniel also had a side hustle working for Instacart. Mm. 
But, you know, things in general seem to be going well for him in Arizona. But again, a move like that is not going to be easy always. Oh, for sure. I mean, I can't imagine that he had friends or any connections in the area. Yeah, I don't think so when he moved in. It sounds like his sister either lived nearby or at some point moved nearby. Um, He is the youngest of four siblings. So it sounds like he might have had a sister in the area, but I'm not 100% on that. But according to family and friends, beginning in the summer of 2021, Daniel did seem to be struggling a little bit. His brother, David Cauley Robinson, said that Daniel had been a little withdrawn. He had a habit of going to either the beach or the mountains to clear his head. And David said that Daniel had kind of been taking more of those trips than usual. Do you think... um... COVID had anything to do with that? Yeah, maybe. I mean, well, this was this past summer, so not the summer of 2020, but obviously, like, COVID's still a thing. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. But, yeah, they just noticed kind of in the beginning of summer that, like, he just wasn't quite himself. Daniel's co-workers on his geological site also said that he hadn't been acting like himself lately. I couldn't find any, like, specific examples that had been released publicly, But they say that in the days leading up to his disappearance, he had been acting oddly. So no girlfriend that we know of that could have broken up with him? Well, no, a girl does actually come into play. And and that was the thing. That was something that like not everybody knew about Mm. and people kind of had to piece together. Um, But yes, we will get to that because we are going to jump around a bit in this story. But I do first want to get to Daniel's actual disappearance, like the day he disappeared. Because spoiler alert, we're not going to be kind about the police investigation into this case. So I do want to start out with the reason that the Buckeye Police Department may have thought initially that like 99% of people who are reported missing, Daniel would return. On the morning of June 23rd, 2021, Daniel arrived at his job site as usual around 9 a.m. According to one of Daniel's co-workers, a man named Kenneth, and this apparently was somebody whom uh, Daniel had never met before. So his job kind of had him at a bunch of different sites, so he didn't necessarily know everybody on every site. But this guy, Kenneth, said that Daniel was saying like a lot of things that didn't make sense including telling Kenneth that he was tired and asking Kenneth if he wanted to like go to Phoenix with him and rest. Hmm. Yeah. According to Kenneth, after about 15 minutes of being on the job site, Daniel just waved goodbye and took off. Witnesses say that Daniel drove off in his blue 2017 Jeep Renegade and headed west deeper into the desert. Apparently, by their job site, there's like a, a T crossing. And, you know, to go one way was basically the way back toward civilization where he came from. And then to go to the other way just takes you nowhere, like into the desert. And that's the way that he turned. So are we thinking drugs at this point? I don't think anybody knew what to think at this point. Um, Nothing that I've read said that Daniel had any sort of history with drugs. So I don't think that that was necessarily like the at the top of anybody's mind. Sure, but when you're talking about behavior like that, that almost sounds like he's on a hallucinogenic of some sort, peyote, something like that. Yeah, I don't know. So drugs never come into anything that I've read. 
So Ken did kind of think this whole interaction was weird. And when Daniel didn't come back to work after he left, he texted their project manager, Steve, just to kind of say like, hey, you know, what's up? Did he go to another job site? Like, what's the deal? And Steve told Ken that he hadn't heard from Daniel and like no one else had either. And he had no idea where he was. By 3 p.m., when no one could still get in touch with Daniel, Ken left and started to look for him in the desert. So wait, this is a coworker that didn't know him? Yeah, I, d- I don't think they really knew each other. And he went out into the desert by himself to look for him? I mean, he drove. It's not like he hiked out well, there or sure. anything. yeah. But yeah, he drove. He followed tire tracks that went in the direction he saw Daniel heading, but couldn't find any trace of him. Were they on the site alone, the two of them? I don't think so. I think there are other people there. Okay. And this is interesting to me, like, because when I was Daniel's age, I lived in New York City away from my family. And there were times where I lived alone and I didn't have roommates. So stories like this always make me wonder how long it would have taken for people to realize I was missing if something ever happened to me, which is something I often thought about um, at the time. But In Daniel's case, he was so close with his family that according to his father, David Robinson, he knew that something was wrong that very day. He said that it was unusual for his son to go more than six hours without talking to someone or telling him where he was. While this may seem a little excessive, according to his father's post on the GoFundMe page that he set up to assist with search expenses, Daniel oversaw multiple work sites that took him all over the desert, sometimes in extreme conditions. He was also the type of guy who liked to just kind of pick up and travel, and his father said, at inopportune times. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it sounds like it was just kind of important to everybody that, like, Daniel check in and everybody kind of knew where he was, just for safety reasons. And that's where this case already starts to get frustrating. We know from doing 50 or however many episodes of this podcast that knowing right away that someone is missing doesn't guarantee that they're found. Sometimes a disappearance can happen so quickly and completely in an almost unfathomably short amount of time. However, the quicker people start looking for someone who is missing, typically the better the outcome. So David Robinson immediately knew something was up. But unsurprisingly, Buckeye police didn't exactly jump into action. I would assume that his dad probably gave them the same description that he posted on the GoFundMe. Like he has a habit of picking up and leaving. Yeah, probably. And I mean, basically, he got the whole runaround. Yeah. He's an adult. Wait, 72 hours. Right. He's an adult. He has a history of picking up and going on adventures at inopportune times. I'm sure he'll be back. I'm sure that's what the the police were saying. Right. And he was. He was an adult who drove off in his own car. Right. Right. Like, it's completely reasonable to think that he just went somewhere to cool off or whatever mm-hmm. and would be back soon. So I, I feel like, I mean, it's frustrating, obviously, knowing that he didn't come back. But, like, you have, I do understand where the police were coming from at this point, right? Right. How, how many resources are you going to, you know, expend on a potential missing person that has a habit of, of going off like this Yeah. versus like, hey, pump the brakes, let's wait a little bit, see if he comes back on his own, and then if he right. doesn't, we'll And it's, it is. It's just the 
worst gamble in the world, though. Well, it absolutely is, and and it it sucks. It's terrible, but at the same time, how many? If they started looking for him right away and expended all these resources, what is that taking away from the rest of their police force? You know? Right, and we we will actually get to um, David Robinson's answer to that question kind of later on because he actually does address that. Because uh, that is a question, like, what resources do you put forth and when, right? Right. So, yeah, we will get to that toward the end, but I think that is something to keep in mind in this story. Though the Robinson family was pushing for action immediately, because, again, they're his family, they know him, they know something is wrong, they were obviously met with some resistance. The day after Daniel was last seen, on June 24th, they requested a helicopter search. Because like we're talking about the middle of the Arizona desert here. Sure. You yeah. know, it's just a lot of nothing. So searching for anyone on the ground would be incredibly difficult. However, this request was initially denied. The family also requested that police go to his apartment and basically do a welfare check. Just, you know, see if he's there. See if he's there and not answering the phone for some reason, which he never did. But you never know. And, you know, his whole family's in South Carolina at this point, right? So they're really relying on the police to help them out. So police did go to Daniel's apartment, but they did not enter. They just knocked on the door and left after he didn't answer. Why? Don't know. It's an apartment building, right? Mm-hmm. Or an apartment of some sort. So yeah. the landlord should have a key. What might assume where they're super whoever, yeah. Yeah. That seems like a pretty simple step. Yeah, one would think, but no. During these conversations on June 24th, police also suggested that the family, you know, check his social media accounts, which makes sense. Sure. And that's when they saw that all of Daniel's photos on Instagram had been deleted after he disappeared. Huh. The next day, June 25th, records show that police did agree to do a helicopter search but it doesn't look like the search was actually done until July 7th, two weeks after Daniel was last seen. According to WABC 15 in Arizona, Civil Air Patrol, which is comprised of volunteers who do air searches, was not contacted by police until July 7th. July 7th was also the date that police finally entered and searched Daniel's apartment. That's, that's a long time to be missing that's in the desert. That's a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. And so, again, I, like I said, records did show that they agreed to the search on June 25th. So I don't know if there was another, some sort of other air search prior to them contacting Civil Air, air Patrol on July 7th, but they did not contact them until July 7th. As soon as the first helicopter search was denied the day after Daniel went missing, David knew he was going to have to take matters into his own hands. He booked a plane ticket and arrived in Arizona on June 25th. David seemed to instinctively know what many missing persons families, especially when it's a missing person of color, as Daniel is, come to find out. That if you want something to happen in your loved one's case, you need to put public pressure on authorities and not let up. So while David has done that, he says that Buckeye Police Department's lack of interest has wasted valuable time time that was critical in finding his son. He and Daniel's brother have repeatedly decried what they call the police's nonchalant attitude toward finding Daniel. 
Even after they started their investigation, they weren't devoting the time and resources that the Robinson family believed they should. That's why, as soon as he arrived in Arizona, David started his own parallel investigation. He corralled volunteers all over the state who helped him search with cadaver dogs and drones. He even hired a private investigator to find his son. While they searched through the end of June and into July, no trace of Daniel was found. That is, until July 20th, nearly a month after his disappearance. Get ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger, and romance. That's right. It's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries. Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects, and claim rewards. The visuals are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. (laughs) As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger and romance in full force. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. On July 20th, 2021, a local rancher, not the police, located Daniel's car. Oh, really? Yeah. It was on his property, lying on its side at the bottom of a ravine with its airbags deployed. Oh, that's not good. The rancher found it about four miles from the job site where Daniel was last seen. Inside of the car was Daniel's wallet, phone, keys, and next to the car was his clothing. But there was no sign of Daniel. So, like, what in the Bryceless Pizza is going on? Yeah, right. That's exactly what I was thinking. Except clothing? Yes, because I want to talk about the clothes. Because most articles that I read were not specific about this. As I mentioned before, Daniel had to travel between multiple job sites, so it would make sense to me that he would have extra clothes in his car. So when I first read that they found like his clothes, I was like, okay, well, sure, like he had clothes in his car. But according to an interview that David gave to Jada Pinkett Smith on her YouTube show, Red Table Talk, quote, my son's clothing, everything he had on his body was about three feet away from the vehicle in a pile. They said that the vest he wore the day he went missing was another foot away. His cell phone was in the vehicle or computer. His phone was in his pants pocket in a pile, end quote. So was there any blood or anything on on the clothing? Nothing. So that's the thing. Even though this car was on its side, airbags deployed, smashed up, and the seatbelt in the driver's seat was apparently still buckled, There was no blood, no sign of anything like that. Even in the Bryceless Pizza case, there's like at least a little bit of blood in in the car, but no, nothing. According to that rancher who found the car, one of Daniel's work boots was actually underneath the car, which struck him as odd. Because like if you're just getting out of the car and like stripping your clothes off, why would your boot be underneath it? 
Even weirder, there were also two mismatched socks found at the scene, one Nike and one Adidas. Jeff McGrath, who was the PI that David hired, eventually found the matching Nike sock three miles away from where the Jeep was found. So three socks in total. First off, I'm baffled by all of this. Yeah, and let me tell you, it was not until I dug deep into this case that I actually found this information because everything that I had read was like, oh yeah, they found his car. Like I had to read several, like really get into it before I found out that one, it was the clothes he was wearing. And then two, I I think I read like two different articles to actually piece together the thing about the socks. So you said there's no blood. Nope. Was there a mention of soiling of any kind? No. And one of his boots was found under the Jeep. According to the rancher. That was on its side. Yeah, so that's the thing. I don't exactly know how that works because, yes, it was on its side, so I'm not sure. But from what the rancher said, I mean, the boot was like in a weird place away from the rest of his stuff at the very least. She said it was Jeep Renegade. Correct. All right, so I just showed you the photo of his car on its side. Okay, so it's kind of hard to tell from just this one picture. So the, it it does, I could see a pile of clothing. It doesn't seem like it's that far away from the, the Jeep. In my mind, it was I was picturing it a lot further away. No, they said it was just, um, I think the clothes were a foot away, and then the vest was three feet away. So it looks like it's on its passenger side, but I can see damage to the front end on the driver's side. Yes. And... I don't know whether there's damage to his front window, his front windshield, driver's yes. side, but then his... Yes, there's a there's high up damage on the windshield. Yeah, okay. I can see that. It almost looks like a baseball size. Yes. Crack of some... Oh. And then, I guess, what is that? His moonroof, sunroof, something in the back of the car is is completely broken out. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious as to what any investigator said about the damage to the front end of the car. Yeah, on the driver's side, right? On the driver's side. Uh, the, the side that's not on the on the ground. Well, if you're when you say the word investigator, if you're referring to the police, the answer is nothing. I said, I said any investigator. <laughs> if you are referring to perhaps Jeff McGrath, the private investigator, he had a lot to say about it. Okay, I'm also curious about what there's seems to be a piece of the car that's pretty far away, pretty far away. Yeah. Uh, that's not in the ravine. Right. So, I mean, again, here we have, so initially when you were describing it with the boot being underneath the car, according to the rancher uh, and his clothes in a, in a pile, I, I was thinking it was like somehow staged. Right. But this to me looks like, you know, the the damage to the front end and the damage to the driver's side window leads me to believe that he hit something mm-hmm. and then ended up going off-road and crashing into this ditch. The clothes being taken off, well, okay, so the the, the boot being underneath the car, the, the, there's, it, the car is on its side, but it, it's in a ravine where there is space underneath the car. Yeah, so it does make physical sense that yeah, I the mean, rancher it, could have seen that. 
Yes. Yeah. I don't know why he would be removing his shoes, but for whatever reason, if he was doing that inside the car or immediately upon getting out of the car, it would make sense that a boot or something could end up underneath the car. Mm -hmm. I still don't understand why he would take his clothes off and the whole three socks thing, but you did say that it's reasonable to believe that he had extra clothes of some sort in his car. Correct, but I wouldn't think he would only have a single sock. No, but that's why I asked about whether uh, his clothes were soiled. Oh, yeah. You know, accident happens, you know, maybe he lost control of his bowels out of panic and got out of the car and changed his clothes and left them in a pile. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's actually a very good theory, and I... Don't know, but like, yeah, nothing like that has been mentioned. Is there other damage to the driver's side that that you found? Because it's look, it looks like it looks like he's missing his side view mirror too on the driver's side. Yeah, maybe. So there's a lot more damage to the driver's side of the car than I would than I would assume, given that it's on the passenger side. Right, and that's what Jeff McGrath, the PI, kind of keyed in on as well. But despite like all of the weirdness with the damage to the driver's side, the sock, you know, the the clothes, like in general, as was the case with Braceless Pisa, police didn't suspect foul play in Daniel's disappearance after finding that car. Well, I, I'm still not convinced of foul play either, but there are it, there are a lot of suspicious circumstances surrounding this given the evidence at the scene. Right. And and McGrath, in an interview, um, was asked that, like, there, he's asked, like, did you find evidence of foul play at the car? And he's like, no, we didn't find specific evidence yeah, of no, foul there's play. No, there's no blood. There's yeah. no, but he's like, know, we didn't find evidence kind. that there wasn't, you know, like sure, to yeah. him, it's inconclusive, basically. Yes, right. But yeah. like something alarming happened. Right. Like something very not great happened in that car. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there, there's like I, like I said, there's there's enough there that it leaves me with too many questions that are unanswered. Right, and to me, those questions should lead to like and a pretty intense investigation. Yeah, if we're assuming he didn't have any extra clothes, that means at this point, uh, this is a month after he went missing. Just like three weeks, yeah. So he's naked and in the desert. Right, right. I mean, at that point, you better start doing a, a, a pretty in-depth search exactly. for a body. Yeah. Because nobody's surviving that. No. You, know, you can't just throw your hands up and be like, oh, well, <laughs> I mean. Yeah, exactly. That's and not, yeah. and, and even, if, even if the police aren't suspecting foul play, okay, well, here's evidence that something happened and he's not there or not in his right mind or yeah he's not walking he's not walking through the door going like oh what i was just in vegas you know like that's not what this is yes exactly so what did the what was the police response other than we don't suspect foul play okay well i will get to that because it's um pretty upsetting (laughs) um but i do want to talk i'm this is where i'm going to back up a little bit before we get into that and talk about, you know, why at this point 
the police aren't suspecting foul play. We've already talked about how Bryce's family said he had been acting withdrawn in the weeks before his disappearance and that his co-workers described as kind of just being off. But police reports have some more specific information. Two days prior to his disappearance, Daniel's sister said that he texted her saying he had an emergency, but when she called him back, he didn't answer any of her calls. Today's episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. It was a night like any other. We'd just finished a live show of the podcast at Madison Square Garden. It was nice to see Megan and Harry. You know, so nice of them to come. Then we told the pilot, hey, gas up the PJ. We out of here. Wait, gas up the PJ? Megan and Harry? (laughs) Just go with it, okay? Okay, okay. So, Wendy, we gassed up the PJ. And then what? Well, (laughs) while we were on the PJ, that's private jet for regular folks. I was wondering. We we were up in the clouds, (laughs) scoring some quality time with Best Fiends. It was incredible. And the good news is I'm on level 393. Right on. (laughs) Yes, it sounds incredible. But if Mm -hmm. your head's in the clouds like Wendy in an imaginary (laughs) private jet with Megan and Harry, or your feet are firmly planted on the ground at work or in line at the grocery store, one thing is true. Best Fiends is just plain fun. Mm, It is true. Now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. There are dozens of unique fiends to collect, so you can customize your team of fiends to defeat the menacing slugs. I'm sorry, I was just looking at this funny text from Harry. Anyway, power up your favorite fiends to new levels for even more powerful skills and watch them transform as they get stronger. With offline play, Wendy's favorite, you'll Mm -hmm. never be stranded without fun, even if you lose your internet connection. Download your favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Did you know one out of six couples struggle with infertility, including old Whitey and me? Seriously, that is a staggering statistic that most people don't know or aren't ready to talk about. We need good data and information about our bodies in order to have informed conversations with our doctors and make the best decisions for ourselves and our futures. Good data and information about our bodies is crucial when it comes to our body autonomies, especially in the year of our Lord 2022. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's why Modern Fertility was created. It's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days. Traditional testing can cost over $1,000, but Modern Fertility gets you the same info at a fraction of the price. And if you go to modernfertility.com fruit, you can get $20 off your test. Also, and this is really cool, mm. if you have an HSA or an FSA, you can put those dollars towards Modern Fertility. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Now, if you want kids to Today or in the future, never are undecided. It's important to have clinically sound information about your body, which can help you make the decision that's right for you. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com fruit. That means your test will cost $179 instead of the hundreds or thousands it could cost at a doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com fruit. That's modernfertility.com fruit. She also told police that another time, and the time, like when he did this is unspecified, but he came over to her apartment, sat in silence for 30 minutes, and then left. 
Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. Daniel's dad also said that a few weeks prior to his disappearance, Daniel had told him that he was in love with a woman. But after they kind of had conversations about this, David thought that it was a little odd because it also didn't seem like his son actually knew this woman he was supposedly in love with. Investigators ended up finding her through phone records and interviewed her. And then she gave an interview um, to, I believe, the Daily Mail as well. So apparently the story is a few weeks before he went missing, she was having a party at her house and had ordered alcohol from Instacart. So Daniel was her delivery driver. And when he came, she said that like he looked nice because Daniel is very cute. I mean, he's just he's a cutie. And so she's like, he seemed harmless. He was nice. Like, so we invited him in. She later said, she's like, listen, I was drunk. Like, it seemed like a good (laughs) idea at the time. (laughs) (laughs) So he did. And he hung out with her and like her friends and um, the two exchanged numbers that day. Daniel ended up texting her several times after that. But, you know, she made it clear she wasn't interested in him romantically. But he also showed up unannounced at her home a few times. Yeah. So the second time he did that, she told him to stop doing that and not to contact her again. You know, he was basically the last kind of text between them. It was he was basically like, oh, do you hate me? She's like, no, I don't hate you. But like, no, like you can't do this. It's not okay. Don't contact me anymore. 
And he didn't. Daniel disappeared 18 hours after his last text to her. So it seems that the police are leaning toward the idea that Daniel harmed himself. Here's something weird. So according to a post from September 25th on the Police Help Find Daniel Robinson Instagram page, a detective with the Buckeye Police Department told the family, quote, your son probably had a head injury from the crash, got out, took his clothes off, and walked off into the desert naked to join a monastery, end quote. <laughs> what? I I have no fucking idea. Like, and all right, listen, I did do my due. I Googled there is a monastery about 27 miles outside of Buckeye. But like, what? Like, why? Why would a detective say this to a family? Also, if that's your theory, like go, go to the goddamn go to the monas- monastery. Go ask, like ring the bell. Like what? Yeah, what? Like what? <laughs> if you think that and you and you like shoot it off as an idea to your other detectives that are on the case, that's one thing or or you know, or yeah. you're like shooting the shit with the guys in, in the office and you say something like that. That's one thing, but why why would you tell the family that? Right. Like why? And again, if you if you think that's your theory, go investigate it before you say something to the family. Yeah. So the Robinsons are not fans of the Buckeye Police Department. With that said, the theory that Daniel harmed himself does make sense given his behavior leading up to his disappearance. But like we said before, that doesn't mean he doesn't need to be found. Right. Or doesn't need help. Right. And while Daniel's family likely understands that this is a possibility, they're not content to take things at face value. For example, the car crash. So like I promised, we're going to kind of get into what Jeff McGrath thinks about this whole thing. So Jeff is a former police officer, and now he owns Three Laws Recon Investigations, and he's the PI that David Robinson hired to help find his son. He's also an accident reconstructionist. So he took a deep look at the Jeep. And he immediately, before he did anything, like just basically seeing it, you know, he thought that it didn't look right. He told Arizona's NBC 12, quote, the damage didn't match with the terrain and where it was laying, end quote. And to your point about the driver's side, I read in a different article that like he he specifically mentions that he's like, there's all this damage to the driver's side that does not match with it being where it is and lying how it is. Right. I mean the, the, the terrain, yeah. especially it's, it's low laying brush. It's and he's in a higher vehicle. Jeep Renegade is, is a, a midsize SUV SUV. Mm-hmm. It's not something that like the small bushes that were out there would get damaged from. Right. And that, damage in the windshield he was like it's too high and it looks like it was made with like a rock or yeah. a bat or right. something yes. you know it looks like it was deliberately made it didn't look to him like it came from just being in an accident no it's it's pinpointed and it's the size of what looks like could be a fist but that right. that general size yeah i'd be curious if if there was a way for him to tell whether the damage came from external or internal obviously i can't see that on the picture yeah um but depending on the the way you know is it concave or convex depending right. on how you how you look at it 
Yeah, I haven't read anything that says it specifically, but I feel like if it were internal, that would have been that probably mentioned, would have been you mentioned, know? Yeah, because then you're talking about a whole host of other questions. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But then it leads you to, to, to question, did somebody throw a rock at the windshield? Right. And then when did that happen? Did that lead to something, or or was or was that done after the accident? Exactly. So we do have a little bit more information about the accident itself because, again, McGrath like really worked on this. He downloaded the information from the airbag control module and found that the engine had been turned over forty six times after the airbag was deployed. Oh, so he hit something and was trying to restart the car. That's That was my first thought, right? Like, that's what that sounds like to me. Like, that to me isn't a crazy thing. It's not something you would do if the Jeep was on its side. Yeah. Right. So the Jeep has to be upright at this point. Airbags have already deployed, and he's trying to turn the engine over. He's trying to restart the car. Exactly. And the ACM also stores speed data and showed that the car was driven for 11 miles after it crashed and the airbags deployed. But you said this was only four miles from his work site. Yeah. They were also able to determine that the crash happened around 1 p.m., about four hours after Daniel was last seen. Where did where did this girl live? I'm, I, I don't know. I'm curious if he walked off, tried to go to her place to see her Mm -hmm. I, i don't know yeah no nobody knows mcgrath told reporters quote the activity with the vehicle is very suspicious and anytime we get a download that doesn't match by looking at the photographs it doesn't match the area sometimes those could be a staged event and that looked like a stage event to me end quote so his theory is that the crash happened elsewhere and somebody rolled the jeep down the hill basically And the rancher who found the Jeep on his property, he doesn't think it had been there for very long. Like, he does not think that it was there the full three weeks. He told the Daily Mail of the Jeep, quote, It was clean, and my cows would have found it. Cows are inquisitive creatures and would have licked it, end quote. (laughs) Okay. It's an interesting image, but okay. It is, right? But with that said, I mean, also, they had done aerial searches by this point. Right. And it was only four miles away. And yes, it was in a ravine, but... But the ravine isn't that deep. It's yeah. Not, we're, not, we're not talking about a, a trench. No, we're not. And David had said that there were two confirmed aerial searches that the police had done that definitely covered that area. Yeah, it's interesting that he said the farmer said it was clean too. So yeah. you're talking about being in the desert for three weeks. Three weeks, and he's right. It 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 barely looked dusty in that photograph. Yeah. Huh. So it's hard to say what all of this definitively means, right? Because it's just a lot of questions. Yeah, I was just going to say it just it just leads to more questions. Yeah, but you can see why the Robinsons were continuing to grow frustrated with the police. It was his detective who examined the vehicle and uncovered this information, not theirs. Right. But regardless, finding a crashed car in the middle of the desert with his belongings inside, like we said, certainly indicates that something bad happened. 
But even after this discovery, Buckeye police still weren't kicking things into gear. So what's the distance between his work site and where the Jeep was found, you said? I believe about four miles. Four miles. Okay. And how long did he say the data showed that he had driven? It showed that the airbags were deployed approximately four hours after he was last seen. Okay. So, but, you know, we don't know what the starting mileage was versus the ending mileage. So we don't know how many miles he drove during that four hours. I feel like you you could come up with, and, and but we do know at least a slight direction of travel. Because you said that the the his coworker saw him saw go him west, go west, or mm-hmm. turn left down that road. I yeah. can't imagine there's a whole lot of roads in the area. No. So you have one direction of travel. You've got a time period. You, you're not talking about a, a vehicle that's going to travel at 120 miles per hour. So you're right. you're looking at an average speed of high high end 60, and that's depending on the road. So. I feel like you can come up with a general area to search for where he might have gone. Yeah, and the police have said recently that they have themselves searched about 70 square miles. Okay, right, because it's four hours total, but it was only found four miles Mm -hmm. from the site. So in theory, he went two hours one way and then two hours back. Perhaps, yeah. Thereabouts. Or one hour one way, one hour another way, like, you know, did a well, square. Sure, like, but the, again, th- there should be a, a general search sure. area where you could start. Yeah. Because now you know that he didn't just drive those four miles and and then had this accident. Yeah, so it gets even more disturbing, though, in terms of, like, how the police handled this, the finding of the car. According to an interview that Daniel's father gave to the Daily Mail on October 5th, Buckeye police didn't take any of Daniel's belongings that were found in the car into evidence. What? Yeah, so they gathered them all in paper bags, marked them as impounded for safekeeping, and turned them over to David. So there was no test done? There no. Were, there were no tests of any kind done? Nothing. And, okay, well... There's no visible signs of bodily fluid of any kind, supposedly. I understand there's no need to do tests, but why would you turn them over and not keep them? Yeah, good question. David was wondering the same thing. Jeff McGrath, though, it gets worse. He says that that's not the only thing the police handed over. When asked if he believed Buckeye police were still actively investigating Daniel's disappearance... This is what he said. The Buckeye Police Department has turned the vehicle and all of the evidence over to um, myself, my team. So I have all the evidence. So if they're actively investigating it, they don't have any evidence um, or anything to really investigate other than they can come out here in the desert with us and help us. Is that customary for police to hand over evidence to a private investigator in a case like this or any other? Not at all. No, I've never seen it in my career uh, in law enforcement or as a private investigator. Why would they do that? Did they say? Uh, They said they were they told me they were done with the investigation. Um, They say now that they have an ongoing investigation. So um, I can only go by what they told me 
in person was that they don't have a crime, therefore they're not, they don't have an investigation, so they turned everything over. What the hell? Yeah. Okay. And keep in mind, again, Jeff McGrath was a police officer. Like, he's been in law enforcement. He knows how this is supposed to go. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm dumbfounded. I mean, uh, for, for them to hand everything over to a, to a private investigator is, I mean, if they're going to, if they're, if they're going to, going to assume that, that he's not a missing person, he's not endangered, why would they hand it over to a PI instead of his parents, first off? But secondly, well, no, I think to answer that, I think it was basically like they knew that, you know, he was David's PI. And so he's like, okay, well, we're not going to do anything with this here. You do something with that. And okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're not going to. Yeah. Well, all right. I guess that's one way to do your police work. But then secondly, to say we don't have any evidence of a crime, so Uh we're not going to investigate that's absurd to say something like that. You don't need evidence of a crime to investigate things, especially when you're talking about a missing person. Right. You need an evidence of a crime to get warrants and to do... Sure. You know, there are things that you, you yes, do... Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, but th- when, when it's still a mystery, you right. as a detective should be investigating the mystery about it, especially when you're talking about somebody who is not whose whereabouts are not known. I don't... And who has to be presumed to be in danger at this point, right? It doesn't seem like they're acting like it, though. Yeah. I mean, even if you take that, that crash scene at face value and say he walked off into the into the desert, like... It's not good. Okay, we'll start searching the fucking desert for him then. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't understand what they're doing. Well, and neither did Jeff McGrath, like... <laughs> My favorite part about that clip, and it might get cut off uh, when you listen to this, but we have the full interview on our website, is like the long, heavy sigh <laughs> yes, yeah, at the beginning. Before he answers yes. the question. Yeah, yeah. That, I noticed that as well. I didn't, it's funny. Like, I, I, I guess I just, I didn't realize that the interview was being done with the PI who got the information. I, yeah. th- I thought it, it was the dad or, or, or a relative or somebody that they had turned it over to. No, oh, yeah. Like, Wow. Yeah, it's it's uh, amazing. So, you know, as July turned into August, David was still in Arizona. Like, he stayed in Arizona. He was still gathering volunteers and performing weekly searches in the desert. But Buckeye police? Well, they had moved on. David Robinson told the Daily Beast, quote, As long as they can keep it as a missing person, the police don't have to actually go look because he's an adult. They don't have to spend a lot of resources because he's an adult. If they turn it into a possible criminal case, for instance, then they have to actually do some work. I can't get them to change that narrative despite all of the evidence my investigator gave them. End quote. Well, so... I, I I understand what he's trying to do to get them to move in that direction, but mm-hmm. it, it also seems really absurd that it has that that classification has to occur before they start actually investigating. This. Right, it does. You're right, and that shouldn't have to occur for them to start investigating it. But at this point, Jeff McGrath, the PI who has actually been investigating this, 
Like he thinks that is what has to happen because he's kind of hit a wall in terms of what he can do. Like he said in another interview, he's like, listen, I'm a private citizen. Like I'm not with the police anymore. I don't have any actual authority. So he's like, I need the police to actually step up at this point. Like we need to get warrants. Like we need to be able to do things that I can't do as a private citizen. Like he's hit his wall. Yeah. I mean, I understand that he can't compel anybody to, um, to speak with him that doesn't want to, but at the same time, what are you going to get warrants for just playing devil's advocate here? What do do you need a warrant for? I don't know. You're right. Because so they, um, I don't, no. We don't have a location of the crime. We don't have a location of the crime. We don't have a location even of the initial accident. hmm If we are to believe McGrath, which I do, uh, given the evidence, I mean, just given that one picture, I already clued in on it. Right. So, but we don't know where the initial crash happened. We're assuming that the police searched in that general direction that I already talked about. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't find anything... What are they, where do they go? What do they go off of? I'm not defending them because it doesn't seem like they're doing much at all, but I'm not sure that there is much that they can do at this point, law enforcement versus private citizen. Yeah, no, I I, I get what you're saying. I think that, and I don't know the answer to that. I think Unless that the, there's something in this that McGrath hasn't, hasn't said because, right. you know, he doesn't want the public to know about it for various reasons exactly and there could be and i don't know you know the main issue is certainly that they told mcgrath that there is not an investigation right yeah and so i think the big issue is hi we should not be doing this on our own did he did they say did he say that they that they turned the vehicle over to him as well the whole vehicle and all of the contents of the apartment that Daniel was living in, none of that was all ever taken in as evidence either because it was all turned over to David, who now has put it all into storage. But he doesn't have the apartment anymore. No, no. At this point, they, you know, du- <laughs> I'm going to go out on crazy limb here and say that they didn't even dust for fingerprints. Oh, yeah. I cannot imagine that they did that. (laughs) Which is why I'm uh, what I would be curious about the car. You inventory the car. You also dust for fingerprints. Yeah, they inventoried it and then gave it to David. I did not read anything about them dusting for prints or any any like scientific testing whatsoever. That may be inconclusive. You may end up with a whole shit ton of fingerprints that aren't Daniel's. But at least you have them as evidence. Yeah, no, I don't... For potential future suspects? I do not know, um, but I have not read a single thing that indicates that they took fingerprints or anything. This case probably would have gone on with the Robinson family fighting to find Daniel basically on their own, but something big happened in September. Gabby Petito went missing. As we've discussed previously, one of the effects of her case is that a lot of people started talking about missing white woman syndrome and pushing for missing people of color to receive the same resources and attention. So this actually helped push Daniel's story to the national forefront. Prior to mid-September, he had been getting local media coverage. Um, The first news story in Arizona that I was able to find on his case was about six days after his disappearance. 
but not a lot of people outside of Arizona had heard about this. Daniel's story started gaining traction, like national news outlets were picking it up. Chris Cuomo was talking about it. Joanne Reed, like all these people were talking about his case. And Buckeye police were like, oh, shit, let's look busy. (laughs) Well, I mean, you said it at the onset. Sometimes it takes a public outcry to actually get things done. Yeah. So they started like posting these really awkward staged photos of searches that they were doing for him on social media and like just stuff like that. That's what McGrath was alluding to at that end of at the end of that clip. Now that the national spotlight is on them, Buckeye police are saying that, oh yes, we care very much about this. We are very dedicated to giving the Robinson family closure. But, you know, according to McGrath, that is not the song they were singing earlier in the summer. The only other thing I have questions about is his Instagram account. Given that his family is so close to him, it's probably reasonable to assume that he wasn't posting pictures of him and this girl. Well, no, because they didn't, like, they only really hung out that one time at the party. Sure. I'm just curious as to why he would delete all of the pictures on his Instagram. I don't know. That just seems a little strange. And do do we know, was there ever any further investigation of of this girl? Uh, Like maybe by the PI? No, she gave an interview. Like I said, I mean, her text messages have been turned over. So we do know like what all of the texts are, what they said. You know, her basic story was corroborated by friends. Like it just seems... Pretty straightforward, basically. Like, she invited him in. He kind of became obsessed with her. She wasn't into it. That was it. I'm I'm just grasping at, at, for suspects sure. at this point. No. Yeah, no. Um, I honestly, I don't think, yeah. I the, think that... Ken, the co-worker, too. It, it, it seems odd to me that he would, you know, quote-unquote, go out into the desert by himself looking for him, having just met him that day? I mean, I guess I'm not, you know, I did read in one thing that they just met that day. Maybe that's not the case. I don't know, because there was only one article that said that. Yeah. I, you know, I'm not sure. Yeah, again, I'm I'm grasping for suspects no, at this point, I know. given, I just, given I just, the circumstances I don't of this think, case. I w- what I will say is that, you know, in reading everything that I read, nobody is standing out to me. Nobody seems to be standing out to the family. The Daily Mail article that I mentioned earlier um, was from just a few weeks ago, and McGrath does kind of outline his working theory, because McGrath is really not completely sure. Like, he doesn't have a strong theory about what happened. He just knows that this seems like weird, right? So uh, his kind of theory is that the day before Daniel disappeared is when this girl was like, don't talk to me anymore, right? He thinks, and this is probably, I would have to guess, based on outside information, that Daniel stayed up all night playing video games. And so when he got to that job site at 9 a.m., he was really tired because he hadn't really slept the night before. And that's why he was like kind of not making sense and like asking Ken if he wanted to go rest (laughs) or whatever. And so he thinks that Daniel took off, went in the opposite direction just to be someplace kind of you know, alone, like not around people. So he could just like take a nap in his car. He then thinks that somebody came across Daniel and harmed him in some way, ended up taking the car 
and then ended up crashing it and then rolling it down the ravine. That's that's all well and good, and that that is a, a workable theory. Uh, however, you know, again, he went in one direction, and the airbag sensors say that he drove for four hours. It doesn't say that he drove for four hours at all. It actually just says that four hours passed between the time Daniel was last seen and when the airbags were deployed. He could have been stopped that whole time. That's true. But what I'm still getting at, his average speed, 60, 65, let's say even 70, Mm -hmm. and his car was found four miles from the job site. So you're looking at a two-hour gap. So you're looking at 120 to 150 miles out. Now, I understand that could encompass him turning off in different directions, depending on what that is, but it gives you a a funnel on a map to search for. Yeah. And if you're not looking for a car, you're looking for a body potentially. So if if something happened in that in that area, that's your search area. Do you see what I'm getting at? Like that's that's the area that I feel like should be focused on. Yeah. To find out what happened to the Jeep. If the, if they did something nefarious to, to Daniel within that cone, like you're you're going to find him. There have been weekly searches for four months. There have been air searches. There have been cadaver dogs. There have been drones and nobody's found him. But what they did find was near his um, car, actually, they found a skull and uh, it was obviously proven not to be him after testing. And according to David Robinson, in the course of his investigations, his searches, they have uncovered the remains of about six different people. Do we know what cause what the cause of death was for those six different people? No, he just says that they found like six people in the desert. So clearly there is a missing person problem in Arizona, right? And the terrain has a lot to do with that. Apparently, Arizona is the number four state with the highest number of missing persons in the country. Daniel Robinson has now been missing for four months. While Buckeye police now seem to be investigating, David Robinson is and continues to be the driving force behind getting answers. In addition to the GoFundMe that he has set up to help pay for his own private search efforts and for his investigator, we'll also be posting the link to a change.org petition that David has started. It reads in part, quote, It appears that the Buckeye Police Department lacks the training to effectively conduct searches for missing persons. Hopefully, this petition can start the process of having funds reallocated to programs that focus solely on missing persons, missing and exploited children, and identifying remains found in the desert. Arizona is among unique places with natural conditions that wreak havoc on the remains of a human's body. If a missing person finds themselves in a desert situation, their rescue must be swift. Unfortunately, the police officers are not equipped, nor are they appropriately trained in rescuing and recovering a missing person. This petition is needed so that the community can move towards a solid resolution to the growing problem found in the state of Arizona, end quote. And let me just say that um, while there's obviously specific training for search and rescue operations, 
the law enforcement industry in general is severely lacking in missing persons investigations. The FBI does a lot of training for missing and exploited children, mm-hmm. but there are very few training opportunities for just missing persons in general. There's not a real guidebook on it. So I think that that's something that's not just specific to Arizona. I think it's something that nationwide needs to be addressed. Oh, absolutely. And David definitely has the right idea here, right? And Start he, small and grow big. Exactly. Yes. And especially because Arizona does have, as he mentions, like the unique geographical and weather features yes. that like makes it especially dangerous for people who go missing in the state. Right. So yeah, he's absolutely correct. And, you know, so right now, as of this recording, the petition has over 78,000 signatures and is halfway to its next goal of 150,000. We urge you to sign and share it on your social media accounts as well. So we'll be posting it on our blog and I'll be posting it on our socials. Let's help Daniel Robinson's family get answers and work toward the family of the next missing person not having to face the challenges that they have. Daniel Robinson has been missing since June 23rd, 2021. He is five foot eight and approximately 165 pounds. He is a black man and has black hair and brown eyes. He is missing part of his right forearm and his right hand. Daniel was last seen leaving his job site in Buckeye, Arizona in the area of Sun Valley Parkway and Cactus Road. Daniel is 24 years old. If you have any information on what happened to Daniel, please contact the tip line that the Robinson family has established at 803-200-7994. You can see all the sources for this episode along with photos and videos at our website, andthentheywergone.com. And be sure to follow us on social, and then they were gone pod on Facebook and at ATTWGPod on Instagram and Twitter. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe and consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It will help new listeners find us. And the more people that listen, the more chances we have of bringing someone home. Yeah, and we're also on TikTok at ATTWGPod there as well. And we've recently... You know, the TikTok algorithm's so weird, and so we've gotten a bunch of new followers lately. Oh. Um, So yeah, so go see us on there if you're on TikTok. But in the meantime, we will see you here next week for a brand new episode. See you next week. And Then They Were Gone is hosted by Kona Gallagher and Ethan Flick. All research, writing, and editing is done by Kona Gallagher. Theme music is The Stork by Ketza. Additional music is provided by Kai Engel. And Then They Were Gone is a Little Monster production. Hey, you can do it! Well, that's it, folks. We hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Check out the show notes for details on where to find out more about today's feature and also about the Darkcast Network. In the meantime, where can the people find us, Beth? 
Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App or you can become a monthly patron through Podbean. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. Oh, yes. And our phone number is 602-935-6294. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.